0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to the a Man's Answer Show live every week, I guess. Now I can say it again. Um, It's episode 78 with Teddy Payne. Uh, Love this guy. He's a dope dude. He's a historian from the Phoenix metropolitan area. He's also history educated and someone who provides knowledge to the general public about history. You can find him on Instagram at historywithted. He posts Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. All right, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. To episode seventy eight of the Connor Man's Answers Show. Uh back with me today is Teddy. He's a historian. Um we had a great conversation last time, so let's just hop back into it. How you been, bro?
1: I've been good, man. Uh just hanging in there. Uh continuing continuing to trudge along on the historical journey. And you? How have you been?
0: Yeah, I've been good, dude. I uh like I told you I was when I was texting you to see if you want to come back on i we just finished up my my senior year of college so i'm finishing that up doing my thesis project which is surrounded um i'm basically finding the continuities and discontinuities between Mar- classical marxism and marxism leninism in order to see whether or not you could call them the same or if marxism leninism was just classical marxism in practice i know for a lot of people if you don't know what i'm talking about that sounds like mumbo jumbo but it's basically the ideology of the soviet union in um installed by or instilled by Vladimir lenin and then installed by stalin um it's it, it's it's basically diving into whether that ideology came directly from Karl Marx himself or if they it was basically innovations added by lenin and spoiler uh, spoiler alert to my thesis they're different basically so I've been really working hard on that uh finishing up football um but yeah bro uh, let's get back into you you know you before we started you were talking about you are you're diving back into the american past and like the american the journey the american journey. So just touch base a little bit on that for the listeners and what you're doing and and I know it's tiresome but just like you're putting all this work in and and, and uh, I feel like people should hear about it, you know.
1: Yeah, um so uh basically um I spent my summer um re-editing, uh re-evaluating and kind of relearning uh, American history, you know, going all the way back to the uh, first crossing of the uh, the first human to enter North America via the uh, Bering Ice, um, the Bering Strait when it was just the a uh, solid ice sheet, um, charting their movements and going over the theories because we're still not sure when um, and when uh, the first migrations began and which routes they took. Um, there are some theories that uh, that that rest on them traveling uh, via a coastal. Um, of a purely coastal uh, route, um, sort of charting down the uh, the coast of um, of Alaska through british columbia, Washington, Oregon, California, and then sort of branching out when they got to um, modern day northern mexico and then there are some who uh hold the view that they that they traveled across um, Basically, Northern Canada, and that there was a, a corridor, an ice-free corridor, that they traveled into that allowed them to gain access to um, the headwaters of the Mississippi River around the um, the Great Lakes area. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it's just been interesting to go through that. It's been interesting to go back and um, look at the sophistication of the uh, pre-Columbian societies. You know, um, mm-hmm. we look back at them, um, we find very sophisticated chiefdoms. Uh, it's um it, it's we're, we're still trying to break through old nineteenth century concepts um it's it's still uh a little difficult to uh to get everybody to come on board and view them as as states as really organized states uh they they we tend to only view the Aztecs and the Mayans the people of mesoamerica as living in states and then mm-hmm. also the um uh the people of um what, 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 what we would now consider the Inca Empire as living in organized states, but you know there's a, a groundswell to um to view the uh, the Mississippi states, you know the uh, the mound builders to view them as city states, um and to view the the pueblos, the the ancestral pueblos, the old pueblos, the people who lived in really towns, to view them as living in city states. So it's it's been interesting to to chart that journey and then to look at. The, um, the early colonial competition, you know, um, everybody is, uh, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but there are a lot of people who are unaware of the role that the Swedes played in settling mm. North America. Sweden is often left out. Um, when you think of a city like Dover in, in Delaware, you know, that city was founded by the Swedes. You know, uh, it goes back to the, uh, the, the ancient, not the ancient, but the old colonial capital of New Sweden. And then you look at the role that the, uh, the Dutch played. Um, an interesting fact about early settlement in uh in what we would now consider Massachusetts or the old Plymouth Colony was that when the when the Puritans arrived, the natives ran out towards them with pelts on sticks because a generation earlier the Dutch had been um, the dutch were were uh, heavily involved in the fur, in the uh, fur trade with the natives everything broke um, broke down when the Dutch um, passed off uh, communicable diseases. And there was a wide sweep of smallpox epidemic that really depopulated the area, um, but a lot, a lot of people are really unaware of that. Or even when we get into the the uh, early colonial competition between the, um, the the Spanish and the English, and then later the English, later British, and the French for you know really really for um, exploiting the. Uh, the land and the resources along the Atlantic seaboard And then later into the, uh, the, Ohio, the Ohio River Valley You know, So it's just been a, a nice journey to catch up with that stuff And then of course, the, uh, the never-ending saga of, of uh, American history it's, it's been a wonderful journey to uh, sort of go back down on
0: After a quick digression um, Going back to the ice sheets, the barren ice sheets So I think a lot of people have heard about that, especially me And so these barren ice sheets we know that the continents obviously because of plate tectonics have been shifting over time. Do they think that Russia and Alaska were touching and there was just a frozen ice sheet above them like kind of connecting them or do they think that they were separated the, during that period and it was just frozen ice sheet on top of the like a glacier basically on top of the ocean connecting the two states?
1: Uh well and again it's different conflicting theories um well Back then, um, it was a lot more ice. It was a lot colder, and the uh, sea level were a lot lower. So there were um, uh, they, they 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 were close enough to where you could island hop. There were a lot of islands in the uh, in the Bering Strait. So they were close enough, um, and the water was shallow enough that herds of mammoths could just travel. You know, could just walk across it, and humans, of course, would follow the herds. Um, they, there are some theory. there's some who theorize that it was island hopping going on there. Some theorize that they could walk across. Some, um, and, and this is still a prevalent view, but that there was an ice bridge. So you, you will be able to say that the, uh, the far stream of Siberia and the uh, western stream of Alaska were connected via an ice bridge. You would um you would still have the uh, the islands poking up above it, but you could essentially just walk across it—a solid sheet of ice.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. And like, because, what strikes me is really fascinating about human history is that, I mean, not only are they finding older humans like the Denisovans, they found them in Siberia, right? And um, obviously Neanderthals that everyone knows about, and uh, modern humans, but they're also figuring out that like people originate from different areas. And we have had this theory. I don't know if you saw it, but there was something that said like they saw, they found a, a modern human in the United States or in in the Americas that dates back like 10,000 years before they thought the first humans were here. And so it, it's fascinating because I feel like as technology gets better and as we get more advanced in how we, how we do geology and how we do anthropology, it, it, it almost makes it seem like, no matter what the the current state of how we think evolution occurred and how we think the travel of humans occurred it must be different because to say that all modern humans i don't know if this is the theory but to say all modern humans came across from asia i feel like it's severely misguided i feel like there had to be people originating in the americas because it's such a large state and because of the thing that we all evolved and 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 um, at one point, Pangaea existed, and they were all connected. You know, um, people must have migrated, or, or or organisms must have migrated because of weather temperatures. So I feel like as we get more advanced, we're going to figure out more and more that people did originate here. It's just going to be interesting to see whether there's it's like another type of human, like the Denisovan, or if it's an actual modern human. What do you think about that?
1: Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Like you said, we um, the more research uh, we put into it, the better it can. The better it's gonna become. Um, we know that at least forty thousand years ago, um, that there were anatomical humans crisscrossing the globe because Australian, um, the Australian Aboriginal culture is the oldest exact human culture, and they arrived in Australia about forty thousand years ago, and mm-hmm. they kept largely that same culture. Um, and then also, as far as genetics are concerned, we still don't know. Um, we, we still don't know the full extent of the of the interaction between these different hominid species, between yeah. anatomically correct man and Neanderthal, um, and this is something a lot of people again aren't really tracking. But there are still people anatomically uh, anatomically correct people, modern Homo sapiens, who carry Neanderthal DNA because there was interbreeding. Now we we only we're only tracking Neanderthal DNA. We don't know if any other the yeah. uh, early hominid species also intermixed with. With um with, with early man, but we do know that there's like isolated pockets from the eastern Mediterranean all the way up into like central uh western Europe. You know, so yeah. there's there's a, a wide range of it, and it doesn't appear that there was just one group that, let's say, during the age of the Roman Empire, this one population simply spread out uh, in different um different areas. It looks like at different points during the initial contact between the Anderthal and anatomically correct man, different small groups and stuff intermixed, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's, so there's, that is, it's, I I would say that it's still too early Mm -hmm. uh, for us to, you know, we can of course theorize and uh, make predictions, but it's way too early to say definitively, oh yes, this happened.
0: I did a 23andMe two summers ago or two, Christmas is a guy thing and it said that I had 90% or 85% um, more Neanderthal in me than most humans do Oh, so that was cool to figure out I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing uh, I don't know hey,
1: um, hey, Neanderthal has a very horrible reputation because yeah. of the whole caveman stereotype um, but they were we have evidence from them that they buried their dead you know it's mm-hmm. it's um it, it is an instinct, it is an instinctively, I would say, human attribute to carry and to, to care for and to bury your dead. You know, the yeah. animals, you know, if you die, they leave you where you're at. No matter how much they love you, even you we really track uh, the intelligence of dolphins and, and elephants. But when the dolphin and the elephant die, the family, the, the loved ones, the herd, the pod, they move on.
0: Yeah. And, the weird thing about humans is we talked about this last time about the Egyptians. Like, they everybody has their own culture around what to do about the dead. Um, but usually, until modern, modern really times, most humans buried, right? Most humans buried their
1: dead. No, no, um, no? no. Uh, very famously, the Romans cremated their dead. Oh, really? Yeah, um, as a matter of fact, it, it's still. People are still looking for like uh, a reservoir, not, uh, well, a reservoir shouldn't, um, isn't really a a good term, but like a cache of like Roman ashes, you know, very famously Caesar, um, I think the most famous example of that, you know, he, uh, they, they broke up benches and tables and all the mob, the Roman mob did this at his, um, at his funeral but the Romans very famously did that uh, you find that a lot of societies where the uh, there wasn't a whole lot of arable land mm-hmm. they took to doing that Egypt with the example with the exception because they had all this desert so they could simply just take somebody out into the desert and it wouldn't affect their arable land but in other societies where arable land was in, in hot demand they took to cremation
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense actually and it seems like i think it's crazy how you know talking about the middle east and or the middle east you know as not as we know it because when you say the middle east now people think of like iran and things like that well middle east like back in the time back in the like the dark ages medieval period things like that people forget that between Socrates and then modern philosophy or like modern sciences. Cause you know, it, without, I mean, I am mainly Aristotle probably, but like from Aristotle who basically started philosophy or he didn't really start philosophy, but he started the idea of thinking about things and then which basically created the sciences, but between him and then modern more modern philosophy in science there's a dark period where the catholic church suppressed all philosophy and all science that didn't go again that went against um religion and went against catholicism and the only reason that we are we still understand socrates plato and aristotle the only reason we still read them is because the middle east was still making advances in science math and um philosophy and so When we're talking about, because I feel like a lot of people, when we talk about science and we talk about philosophy, we only talk about the Western ideas. And people forget about Eastern traditions and how important Eastern traditions were to what we know today. And like, it's not a blank slate, you know, everyone influenced everyone. But before ideas, before globalization, before mass technology, uh, before the spread of humans through planes, trains, things like that, and boats, it was so hard for information to be gathered and, and to be traveled, and it had to be had to be like we. They, they had people. I forget what they were called. You might know the word, but there were people who were their whole job was to memorize writings. Yeah. They're like almost translators to communities and things like that. And so I feel like us Western culture, us as a Western culture, we we almost suppress the Eastern and Middle East traditions. And I feel like by doing so, we forget almost most, not almost most, but almost half of our history,
1: you know? Yeah. Um, I mean to touch on that, I uh right after we uh um had our conversation, uh no, I think during during our conversation, I think I was still writing, uh researching and writing uh a history on ancient Rome. Um You were, yeah. And yeah. Um and and I just had a conversation with a friend of mine on this same subject. Uh and it, it hits on two things. Uh, one, the Eastern Roman Empire, which uh continued all the way until um Solomon the Magnificent captured uh Constantinople in 1453. And this this again, um, that event forced a lot of um Eastern Roman scholars, a lot of the scholars in Constantinople to flee westward, and they went to Rome, and it's what kickstart um, the the first leg of the Renaissance, the first um, sort of mm. like breakthrough in, um, in uh relearning in Italy proper, um, but uh, but uh, but again, you know, going back to those scribes, uh, the people whose job it was to simply um, translate and and uh, make available the wisdom of the past to the new generation, those those individuals they also played, I, I would say, um, an overshadowed role in determining what we learn today, you know, it's estimated oh, that about ninety percent of all of the writings made throughout Roman history are lost to us, are lost in time, mm-hmm. and that's because going back to what you hinted at, the Catholic Church in the West oversaw what was republished. They oversaw what was written. You know, they mm-hmm. if it wasn't approved by your local priest or bishop or even uh, the Pope. It wasn't going to be republished. It wasn't going to be rewritten. They had that executive say. And again, these individual scribes, um, they exercised great leeway. They they had great leeway to to uh write what we would how how we would think of something, how we would learn something. Because again, it, let let's say somebody's translation was a little off, or they favored using um, a certain tense or or um, definition of a word, well, half their writing, half their rewriting these uh, ancient learnings, this ancient knowledge, they're going to put forth their brand of it. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, I don't know if you remember, there was a game uh, kids used to play where somebody would whisper something into somebody else's ear and it would just go down the line telephone. and see how it changed. Yeah, telephone. It would, it would be like that. that that's mm-hmm. basically the learning or the knowledge that we've that descended that, uh, down to us. Um, and the same goes for um, the, uh, the Islamic world. because the, and, and again, the Islamic world, um, as you were hinting at, as you got to actually, they played a great role as a conduit for, for really um, blending and presenting to the world all of the accumulated knowledge up to that point. You know, mm-hmm. the first universities actually came from the Islamic world. You know, you think of Baghdad and the House of Knowledge and around one and around the year 1000, you have these great scholars assembled in Baghdad, trying to figure out why empires rise and why empires fall. You have them taking, uh, you have them accumulating, gathering all of this vast knowledge from the various Indian societies. Uh, taking all of this knowledge from Greek and Roman, Egyptian, uh, Phoenician, um, Chinese society. You have them gathering all this information and presenting it to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Uh, and I mean, and you know, an enduring example of that, right, is our, our Arabic numerals. We know them as Arabic numerals, you know, with the standard zero, one, two, three, four, and so on. Yeah. Uh, they are actually Indian numerals. Uh, the early Islamic scholars, they simply adopted them because they were better. It was, it was a better system than anything before them. They were better, less cumbersome, better for accountings to write uh, and ledgers than old Roman numerals or the old numeral system and, and, uh, and what we now call the Middle East. So they adopted that and they spread that. Um uh, the same thing was with, with chemistry what we now consider chemistry was simply science in ancient chemist that's why it's called chemistry alchemist you know mm-hmm. the same thing with alchemy you know it's the it's the, the science of chemistry alchemy um and then you and then you know to branch off further what we now call philosophy the intellectual wonderings or or thinkings of uh Plato Socrates and Aristotle you know mm-hmm yeah um yeah
0: it seems as a philosophy too because that's something I really I, I study here at um Pacific but i uh, we're taking philosophy of science so we're kind of learning about that right now um it basically started with like like the learn the teachings of those three people and then as it was lost the Islamic and the Middle East cultures picked it back up and they kept on formulating ideas through philosophy and then finally the Westerners um, to Screw you um Catholic church we're going to also learn science but yeah. it's it's crazy because we're learning a lot right now about how objectivity isn 't um, i don 't know if you know anything about theory ladenness but like it 's the idea that everything is theory and that nothing's really objective because behind every theory and behind every um, viewpoint of the world um, there's always theories and there's always ideas that people were have learned from other people and have learned from things they've watched and things like that. So there's no really true objectivity when there's humans involved. Um, And it's, it's crazy to see that because throughout history, science has been something that to study science, you need funding. So you have to study what somebody wants you to study or, or you have to study what, the The Catholic Church or the totalitarian state lets you study, so it's always been formulated through what sub what the state or what the government subjectively wants. And so, objective science and objective reason it they exist while they exist, they kind of exist as a subtract different or um, opposed to the individual or the human because you will never as a human be able to study something objectivity objectively because of how theory-laden you are and how the, the society that you're in de- determines how you think about things and then what you think about things is determined by who you surround yourself with and what you've read and no one has done the exact same things and and it's really fascinating because it really does make you think that there is a, something to the human that is different than to the to a rock or to a wall or to a dolphin. You know, there is something that is that is subjective to being a human and to the experience of being a human. Um, and this gets into something that I wanted to ask you about. I don't think we talked about this last time. Consciousness is something that everybody's fascinated with. And as a historian, do we can we pinpoint or almost like in some type like a century or some type of area in time where consciousness we think evolved to the point where humans thought about themselves or is it still kind of a gray area and we don't really know whether it was something that just happened in one generation or evolved slowly over time what is consciousness and can we pinpoint where it started
1: um and uh historians no no um not uh it's not something that uh, that historians have pinpointed. It is something that psychologists have thought about a long time ago. And there is a theory that, um, for example, our, uh, you're, you're in a dialogue. Um, that the theory that that began, that, that that was first interpreted as early humans believing that the gods or a god was speaking to them. That they weren't insane, that they were being given cues, you know, to, to go ahead and do something or to uh, believe a certain way or to just reaffirm something that they're already feeling. Mm. Okay. Um, that, that, they, that they, would have interpreted whatever they said or did to be their own action, but any thought or impulse that came to them to be the work of a God. And it would explain why we had so many gods and why we gave gods, um, specific attributes and uh, attributed certain times of the year or, or certain natural phenomena to the gods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as far as um, as far as like an, an uh, evolutionary answer, uh, I forget the name of the bundle of nerves that connect your um, your right and your and your left hem uh, brain hemispheres. Um, but there's also a theory that those nerves evolved in humans. To sort of um, bridge together uh, the two halves and sort of provide, I guess, um, a biological mechanism by which to sort of explain away the inner monologue and sort of dampen down the, uh, well, not dampen down, but sort of holding check those um, that, that prior thought, that prior school of thought that this is the actions or the works of the God. Has human society became more complex? Mm-hmm. I don't know if it fully answers it, but it's, it's it's again still not very well understood. We still don't know a lot about the brain, and we still don't know a lot about brain evolution. Uh, there's also yeah. a theory that eating meat, uh, particularly eating fish, uh, spurred development of the brain and sort of put us on that uh, the trajectory path that we have now. So yeah. it's it's uh, it's interesting. There. There's not as many people that I think we should have studying this, but there are people studying it and trying to make breakthroughs in that.
0: I feel like it's very, um, not only is it very complex, but it's very nuanced because of the fact that you could answer it in a multitude of ways. Subjectively, you can answer the question of what is consciousness through religion. You can answer it through um, spirituality. You can answer it through psychedelic experiences. Cause have you heard of the stoned ape theory? I think we've talked about this before. Have you heard about it?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. about how they um, ancient modern humans, when they were coming down from the trees, they ate um, the mushrooms on the path to Sahara, and it made them connect neurons in their brain that hadn't been connected before, and it basically created consciousness. So that's a theory. Um, and it's you can answer the question in a multitude of ways. The reality is I don't know if we'll ever be able to answer why we think – but we just do, you know, like Descartes, I think, or yeah. I was was just
1: about to say that. I think therefore I am. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, uh, so Descartes famously said, obviously, if you guys are listening, I think therefore I am, um, basically proves that you can, you can prove that you're conscious as an individual, but you can never prove that other people are conscious. Everyone else could be anatomic robots and you're just the most, for only conscious person that exists, but you know, you exist because you can think. Therefore, you are existing. Um, it's a fascinating thing. It, it, and it brings a lot of nihilistic viewpoints and it brings a lot of, um, sorry if you're listening, nihilism is basically the idea that like um, nothing really matters to you. Nothing really matters because in the grand scheme of things, you're nothing. You're a speck of the universe and there's no meaning to your life. And you answer that usually through existentialism, which says that authenticity is the best way to go about it. Sorry, I'm giving you a little philosophy um, background, but I think that it, the consciousness argument, because it's so nuanced and, and you can never really pinpoint when someone, an, an early human was thinking, you know, you can't really look at a skull and see, oh, this is when we think um, humans' consciousness evolved because it's so it happens in an organ, or it happens in the in the in the tissue of a, of a human, and so I don't think we'll ever be able to answer when, but I think we will be able to answer how it occurs at, at some point. You know.
1: Okay. Uh, do you think consciousness only applies to humans, or do you think it applies to animals as well? Because you can, or even plant life, matter. Because you can charge and say that um, it is a it is it is a very conscious activity for a predator to yeah. try to trap prey or uh-huh. for. A prey animal, an um, animal that's preyed upon to escape?
0: I think it depends on how you define the word consciousness, right? Because if we're talking about conscious like that, um, so I think the, 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 the definition lies somewhere. When we're talking about consciousness, the definition has to lie somewhere between able to uh, adapt and change, um, adapt and change through decision-making Mm-hmm. and something between deciding that i should that one should do something for the future because of something that happened in the past right so it has to lie somewhere between making a decision that changes and alters your life for the future and making a conscious decision to adapt to an environment so while we have that framework it's very broad i think plants because of the biochemistry that they change for things And animals like dolphins and things like that have to lie somewhere within that conscious argument. Now, when we're talking about human consciousness, it becomes a little more difficult because I feel like human consciousness lies somewhere within making a deal with your life, looking at your life on a timeline. And you bargain with the the present or you bargain with the future, giving away your present to have a better future. That's what working is. While also changing how you live because of the past. Now, while doing that, now, well, now while doing that, we also consciously make the decision to live out each moment how we want to. So, I think the difference is squirrels can put nuts away for the future, but they can't decide what they're going to do right now. And that's a weird thing to say because they're they're animals and they're. And they do things day-to-day basis. I don't think they have complete control. I think it's mostly animals and plants are mostly existing all at once rather than in three – it's very hard to put this We, as humans, almost exist on three periods, past, future, present, right? We exist there. I think animals exist only in the present. And the only way that they're able to bargain with the future – is through their um, genetic code or through their um, what's the word I'm looking for uh, what do they say when they talk about human con- i mean animal consciousness when they're saying that is it just like instinct yeah that's the word I was looking for I just couldn't find it I think it's more only instincts and i think I think that because it's so difficult to put it into words, I think that the instincts that animals have they have been ev- evolved over time and they've created a system where if you exist like this as an animal generations on generations will be fine but they can't decide what to do in the moment like humans can so the definition of consciousness for humans is a little different than for animals and i think that's why the conversation is so difficult we're talking about two different things you know what i mean
1: i know what you mean Yeah. yeah it reminds me of um uh an old joke an old joke, uh, or a professor of mine used to tell us um, that, um, that the dog can only see the next meal. He can't see the meal in the future. Mm, you know, And that was one yeah. thing that separates us from the animals. And it goes back to um, when we first spoke, we spoke about how Neanderthal, uh, how early man cared for each other. And that, I think, can be an example of consciousness, um, clothing oneself. Either to uh, protect oneself from the environment, adapting to the environment in that way, or just being aware that you're naked and you don't want someone else to see you naked. Yeah. So clothing oneself, um, making tools and so forth, they can sort of um, at least, I think, validate, um, validate that uh, early man, that our prehistoric ancestor, before they lived in states, before they... Um, Adopted uh, agriculture or animal husbandry, that they Mm. were conscious, that they had Mm. some understanding of their situation, of their environment, and that, like you said, they um, bartered bartered or bargained their future, you know, in the present.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about World War II for a little bit, because I know we got into it a little bit last time, but I don't think we dive into it as much as I wanted to dive into it. Or World War I, too. I'm fascinated with late 19th century to early or middle 20th century. I think that is the most important human um, time in human history, especially uh, Western human history because of, I mean, the two world wars, but also um, the first trials and errors of communism. And um, I mean, you can even go to the 60s, talk about the civil rights movement. and, And so I think that the thinkers of the 19th century I think we don't give them enough credit because I think they changed the course of human history for... I don't want to say all time, but they just changed the course of human history. Like, Karl Marx's influence, um, regardless of good or bad, you know, was insanely... um, You can can see it. You can really track it. Like, Soviet Union, Maoist, China. Hundreds of millions of people died, probably, um, because of that ideology. Um, And then we look at World War II... Um, we got, uh, fascist ideology, um, the Aryan races. And I think that it, and, and, um, some people would say that Hitler was influenced by, um, nihilists and nihilism, existentialism and, uh, Nietzsche. And I think that though that period in time is so fascinating because it's like the, right after the industrial revolution and it's the time where people started to become aware of what it meant to be living unequally, right? I think it was the time where people started to realize that other people can be viewed as better or worse, and I think that really. What were you going to say?
1: Well, no, I, I was going to say that that concept goes way way beyond that. I will say that now. I will say that in the nineteenth century, the um the the very the very conscious understanding that you know other people are just, that some group of people um younger class, so to speak, were just suffering unendingly, while the upper class were just living this gilded, uh, this gilded existence. Um, that during the the mid to late 19th century, we had a lot more people um, cataloging that. So to speak, we had a lot more people writing about it. You think of the writings of Dickens. You know, most people don't think of Charles Dickens as a um, as a revolutionary uh, literary source, but if you've ever read um, his novels and you listen to or, or just um, yes, really, really read or and uh, and visualize his description of working class English uh, society, particularly those workhouses and uh, and the um, the orphanages that they sent those uh, those kids to. Um, Oliver Twist is a, I mean, yes, a great example of that. Um, but when you when you see that, it's it's revolutionary because we've never had that. We've never had that voice from down below. In, in any of our sources, you know, mm. throughout history, it's been the elites leaving out these records, leaving out these, um, um, these written sort of like snapshots throughout history. So I, I would say that, and then, and then again, too, you go to France and, uh, the wretched, you know, uh, Les, Les Miserables. Um, again, it's a very, it's a very nice, a very neat snapshot into what. The uh, Parisian working class, um, well, not really the Parisian, but yes, the French in general working class, were were, uh, were angry about. And then you go back, I would say, two, let's say, two generations before um, those books came out, the French Revolution, an mm-hmm. explosion of anger. People who were were just angry and they were upset. Uh, The French people didn't really have a problem with one leader deciding what was happening. They weren't so angry about the autocracy of the king. They were angry that the king and his ministers made mistake after mistake after mistake. And hold on real quick. Okay.
0: After a quick, quick digression, go back to the um, French Revolution and things like that.
1: Yeah, so uh, so with the French Revolution, we can also see this um, the, the anger, the angry tide rising from below. And we can go back uh, about a century and a half earlier to the English Revolution, uh, not the English Revolution, but the uh, the Wars to the Three Kingdoms. You know, the ones that um, between the uh, Cavaliers and the Roundheads. We again can see discontent from below at the uh, handling of, uh, of of the affairs of state by Charles the First, and th- you can, I mean, you can go back throughout the eons in history to just see voices from below rebelling against their, their leadership because they were unhappy with the, with the uh, distribution of wealth or they were unhappy with the running of society. And it, it is exactly those, those conditions that led to the birth of democracy in the first place. You have to remember that Athens, Athens um, before democracy was really a hellhole. You had parents, Forced to sell their children into slavery, or this, or husbands forced to sell their wives into slavery. You had this enormous debt peonage going on, and it, it got to the point to where there was that. What, there was um, an outbreak of what the Greeks were called stasis, you know, which uh, we would identify as class um, class conflict, mm. in which the um, really the, the underclasses uh, had enough of, uh, their, um, the elites in the city of Athens and, you know, uh, literally just forced democracy on them. Well, Solon came up with the principles and the concept of it, but you really had the, uh, the lower classes force democracy on them and the Greeks, uh, really the Athenians, uh, and, and Athens, I should say, it's really Attica writ large, um, Attica, the region in, uh, in Greece. Um, mm-hmm. they, they had the genius concept to understand that if we divide the voting blocks right into literally geographic locations, then nothing is really ever going to change. Then we'd have all then we would continue to have this conflict. They had the genius idea to place every man, and, and again, this is this is ancient Greece. So citizenship only applied to free men, women, children, slaves, foreigners, not included. They put every man, every Athenian, every uh, man born in Attica uh, into uh, voting blocks, and they forced those voting blocks to vote amongst themselves, to elect members, into the Athenian assembly. You know, it was irregardless of whether you were a, an aristocrat, irregardless of whether you were wealthy or poor, everybody got in there. It was literally one man, one vote. The Athenian assembly is going to, gonna, we're going to um, elect our our um, archons, our uh, our 10 um, civic leaders for the year, and we're going to have our uh, 500 members of the of our sitting assembly, and we're just going to go. We're just going to go from there, you know. So there's always been this this sort of rise from uh, from below. I wouldn't say that it was purely a late 19th century um, invention. Although the the 19th century is when we first begin to see. Um, members of the underclass writing about their experience and simply documenting everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting too, with uh, with Marxism, because I always felt that Friedrich Engels never got his due credit. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I always felt that if people uh, read more Engels and particularly because Engels is, is so interesting because he was all for communism. He was all for what we, what we, uh, what we would call classic marxism but he was also in the capitalist system you know he was a factory floorman. Uh, floor man he, he ran his company factory in england yeah. so it's interesting you know it and uh, i i had this debate sometime with a friend of mine where we try to see if if angles is the father of corporate welfare right
0: oh wow yeah
1: yeah right involved wow, right yeah it's I don't know. We we've, we've been discuss- we've been having that discussion for like 2 years and it never ends. It's like clearly a lot of angles ideas made it in, but do we really have enough to to fully say that angles is the yeah. public
0: welfare? I think the distinction that a lot of people don't understand about marxism too is that once it hit 19 early 19 or early 20th century um Marx was wrong about virtually everything, um, and he was wrong about capitalism falling to socialism immediately. He was wrong that um, the most advanced states would boil over and become so so ridden with oppression that they would just naturally have an uprising and a violent revolution. And he was wrong that he didn't even see the final stage of capitalism, which Lenin had, which was imperialism, mm-hmm. and it was for, it forced people like Kautsky, um, Bernstein, and Lenin to to tackle this, this to fix it and to explain why Marx was wrong or to add their own innovations. Bernstein, I don't know if you know anything about Edward Bernstein, but he's a famous revisionist uh, Marxist who believed that the only way that revolution was, he thought that violent revolution was, um, what is his famous quote? He basically said that violent revolution is um, emotion um, taking control of the mind and reform and debate is um, the mind taking over emotion, and so he was very famous of saying that. Like as we would think of Bernstein, we would think of someone like Bernie Sanders or someone like um, a modern Swede or Swiss, very <laughs> um, or Canadian even. Um, and then Kautsky didn't even answer the question, and Lenin, Lenin basically created imperialism the last stage of capitalism um he he wrote that famous book he wrote state and revolution and he politicized marxism in a way that through the bolsheviks and he basically subjugated the will of the working class to this to class conscious individuals called the bolsheviks which is if you guys don't know is a group of professional revolutionaries um so basically the authoritarianism lies somewhere from lenin adding that idea of a need for a violent revolution and, and he, and also adding that the workers and the peasants were not class conscious enough and they weren't ready to have complete control. And he basically never gave the working class control. And it always stayed with the party um, through something called democratic centralism, which is basically, if you, if you don't know what that is, it's basically the idea that they could debate, but as soon as the decision was made, you're not allowed to dissent or you're basically done you're you're out of here um and so the soviet union was and Mao's china had kind of this almost the same thing but the soviet union was not classical marxism it it wasn't it it just they were so different but but classical marxism isn't a political theory and i think people think it is it's just a it's a it's a um Classical Marxism is a critique of capitalism and predictions of what was thought to come. It's not a political theory. Political theory comes once we get to Marxism-Leninism or Maoist China or nowadays what we would think of democratic socialist policies and with Edward Bernstein. Marx was not a political theorist. He was a philosopher. Um, And people don't really realize that distinction. Um, And I didn't even realize it until I read, get a 30-page thesis on it, you know? So... Yeah. it's a hard distinction to make
1: um, yeah no no it is uh it's it's uh it's something that you really have to put in the time and effort to. but it's also something that i, I think um the uh the, the, the minor de- not the minor and the major details of it are locked on people because of uh the sort of negative reaction anytime you say Marxism or socialism to some yeah. people, it's an automatic shutdown. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a uh, sort of like cultural legacy of just the Cold War that that just hasn't been resolved through the, uh, through the um, preceding generations, through the, uh, the, the generation following the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union. But yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that statement. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, so as far as, uh, socialism in the West um, and, and capitalism. I've had a theory for a while that I sometimes also debate with friends that cap- that um that really socialism failed with the death of uh, not socialism but like communism classical Marxism uh communist brand of communism really failed with the death of Lenin because I think that if Lenin had lived and he had tried to uh, and, and if he if he had tried to lead the Soviet union through the, uh, the 1920s into the 1930s, he may have come up with this. He may have attempted to put the, um, the ideas of Marx and Engels in the practice, you know, I, I with Stalin. It all came to an end and it was just his way or the highway. Um, but in the West capitalism sort of failed with the depression and, um, with the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl and the stock market crash Only to sort of be rebranded with socialist concept mm. I don't know if you ever picked up on that or if you agree with that You know uh, Yeah,
0: so to talk about the, you know, the, the distinction The socialist policies, the capitalism added Socialism added a little bit to capitalism um, I did notice that um, with the New Deal and welfare now and medicaid and medicare and things like that uh yeah it's i don't think to touch on something that you said i don't think lenin would have done much differently much different than stalin i think stalin was a little more violent but if you read lenin which i have he was very okay with killing dissenters and very okay with limiting people's individuality and very okay with um, oppressing a class of people through what they needed, to give them what they needed. Um, And so I don't think classical Marxism would have ever... It's just so hard because... Yeah, it it doesn't seem like classical Marxism was created to be a state... It seems as though classical Marxism was was just describing why capitalism was flawed and why socialism would take over. It didn't say how it should take over, really. Um, yeah, I think it's the American policies, the American socialist policies. They did do a number on capitalism because now we're sitting in this we're sitting in this world where corporate corporate finance and banking kind of own a share in how the system works, you know? Um, big corporate um, and, and banking specifically own, basically own a part of the country. And, and, and it's, it's really weird. Um, and Lenin talks about this in, um, in Imperialism, The Final Stage of Capitalism. He basically talks about how, Capitalism, as we know it, died with the Great Depression, and what we got was finance capitalism, which is this this merge between big banks and the ta- the industry. Um, and I think that once we get to this new new form capitalism, capitalist imperialism, we find that all that matters is earning more money for corporations and 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 corporations oppressing the people and keeping the people fighting each other so that they can never fight this system. You know I think part of the reason people are fighting so much with with regards to race as if race relations in the United States have been better before, you know what i mean like yeah. it's just about as good as it 's been in a long time um it, it was never race relations in the united states you you don't have, you don't have to go back that far to find true racism like real like i'm talking like you go back fifty years, and these are there, there are people who are being severely like lynched, people who are
1: you know, about thirty years for that man yeah I think, yeah I think yeah. that's the last one that made national headlines was uh unsurprisingly a case from mississippi yeah uh, in which uh, in which um guy was actually chain um he was it, it was it was uh it was never fully investigated mm-hmm. but it was but it was so brutal that it made the headlines anyway um they they hung him with chain rope with like the the metal like uh chain rope and stuff yeah um mm-hmm. But but to go off of what you were saying, man, uh, yeah, Um, corporate imperialism is like sort of like um, what emerged from from um, from, uh, I guess, the capitalist world following World War II. you know, from from we, we can steadily chart from 1950 to the present, corporations have become sort of central. They they they've sort of taken over global economics and global politics in the way that the old colonial powers had. You know, you, you look at the role that uh, the United Kingdom or France played in, in various nation states around the world, and you can see corporations doing the exact same thing. I think it was, um, I was watching an episode of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, and he was talking about how tobacco corporations were in intimidating people with fake laws uh not just people but also governments with fake laws um, to prevent them from trying to uh impose um anti-smoking laws or trying to get them to stop marketing uh tobacco products to to children you know so yeah we, we we can definitely chart that and see that corporate imperialism sort of is like the new imperialism it's you know it's Almost like Orange is the New Black before yeah. imperialism.
0: Do you think that as United States and as the world, as globalization becomes so pertinent with social media and technology, do you think that we'll ever become unified as a country or as a... Um, yeah, the planet? I would you can't really say planet, right? Because there's still there will always be dictatorships, and there will always be far ends. You know, there will always be people trying to be egalitarian. There are always be people trying not to be egalitarian. You know, but you ever think most people are going to be in line aligned politically,
1: um, and think
0: that there is a there's probably if you're if you're in a country where it's possible the best way is this right do you think that like probably democratic socialism if we're looking at it do you think that most people are going to be able to say yeah you know life's a little unfair but we need a little bit of it to be unfair so that people want to be better and people want to like be successful but we we can't like the way i like to say it is inequality is bad because it causes crime right yeah. um we 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 know that we know that poverty causes crime we know that right but inequality is also good because it causes um, hard work and people to, to be successful. So how do we, and, and, and to innovate and to create new ideas. So how do we limit inequality so that the whole system doesn't topple on itself like it's doing right now, while also ensuring that people are on the, the whole spectrum? There are people at the top and people at the bottom. How do we limit the bottom with the spoils at the top while also ensuring that we're, there's still a game to be played so that people will, because if we're sitting on, if we're sitting pretty, if everyone's sitting pretty, we're not getting more advanced as a society. It's just not happening that way. Marx has a famous saying that he died that communism. You could fish in the evening and um, hunt at night, right? No matter what though, no matter what though, if me and you go hunting, one of us is going to be better at hunting, right? And, that competitiveness, I don't think it's something that capitalism creates. It's something, I think it's something that's in, intrinsic in humans, especially human males. And so how do you ensure competitiveness um, and inequality while also limiting how violent it has to become, you know?
1: Um, that's a tough one. Um, a lot of different societies have, uh, have attempted it um, during the, um, during the, uh, the post-war years, after World War II, the United States attempted that, but they only attempted it for um, the European Americans. You know, you see this boom in suburban housing. Mm. You see everybody having the house, the car, um, the amenities. You see the rise in youth culture with theme parks, um, even adult culture with uh, Las Vegas being, like a, the development of Las Vegas being like a prime example of it. But it was limited. And we can sort of like mirror that with South Africa. Um, The South African government from the 1930s onward, they would hold these studies where they tried to solve the problem of the poor whites. And both times the solution was to keep a class of people, to keep um, classes of people down, to bog them down, to allow others to thrive. Um, I, I think that you can do it. I think that you can create a system in which, um, a vast majority of, of uh, the people in a society are living comfortably. Um, while while, while uh, some uh, I guess are, are still striving, are left in a condition to try, to sort of strive to sort of um, rise through the ranks, I I don't know. I I would agree that democratic socialism is perhaps the best path towards that. Um because I, th- I think that uh, with a democratic socialist system you would have a enough social safety nets to where there wouldn't be the type of of uh, poverty or dire need that we have now. Um, I, I think Lyndon Johnson would uh, with the set of policies he was he had put in place to create his great society. I think that, I think that if we ever really truly invested in Johnson's vision for a great society, if we sort of like legislatively set the clock back to 1968 and picked up all of Johnson's policies and put them forward, we can create a society, a a large scale society in which we could legislate and through social programs, um, have an American society at least that did not have an underclass, but the great dilemma with that is we're always, that we're always going to have people coming here for people, people, people are like water, you know, they're going to take the path of least resistance. So if you know a nation state has a society and it's in a uh, social system in place where even if you're at the bottom you can still strive you can still pursue education or Mm. or some sort of like um uh entrepreneurial uh, course to better yourself if you if everybody knew that then it'll just have unequal um immigration you know and and it, it sort of hints at what colonialism was you know colonialism was your Uh, You're from a a backwater region in England. You're from one of those backwater countries, rural uh, uh, counties in England. You find yourself to a port. You book passage on a ship, and you have unlimited, um, unlimited attributes, unlimited uh, options set before you. You can go west and become a farmsteader. You can go west and become a rancher. You can. Go into a city, become a laborer. You can um, you can sell your labor locally and try to uh, try to pay your way through uh, college. Try to get an education. It was all these different things. Um, so I think it can be done, but I don't think it's going to solve the problem long term. You know, it'll be a nice solution in place for the people there now, but more people are going to come, and you have to. And, and again, you know, I don't think that there's. I don't subscribe to a theory that there's just a finite amount of wealth in the world or in the planet. Um, Definitely, we can create a system in which, um, again, using a democratic social model, we can put in place price controls and say that in this section of town, rents or houses are going to cost this amount of money. Um, and all the grocery stores, these products are going to cost this amount of money. So it's sort of like, you know, the old Soviet model and stuff where everything had a lifted price. Um, uh, but again, you know, e- even if we take that, that, even if we put all those things in place, We will still It'll be like a temporary solution It'll be like putting a band-aid On the problem It can be done But we're still gonna have to like Try to export that system From country to country I don't know if it makes sense I don't know if it It does man all of them, they, Well they man I think
0: I think that's a good way to end it man We've been on here for about An hour and 20 minutes So right. I think that's a good way to end it um, I always love talking to you man It's always a really insightful and 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 Grandiose and and a fun conversation when we talk, so we definitely got to do it again um, quicker than we did last time. It's been like five or six months since we did the last one. Um, thank you as always for coming on, man. It's 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 always a blast. Hey,
1: yeah, no problem, man. Always happy to uh, to come on and and discuss uh, these matters with you, man. Yeah, it yeah. was it sort of threw me for a loop with this one, man. Was a lot more philosophical, I would mm-hmm. say, than our uh, than our first one
0: yeah it's it's i mean it's whatever you know i like i like doing this kind of format because it's like whatever the day calls for whatever the conversation calls for is where we go you know it doesn't really have to be and since we've already had a conversation and i almost kind of interviewed the first time i feel like we're more open this time we can just speak you know and it can be more of a long-form conversation rather than just a um interview you know I got you. well you have a great rest of your day man um and i'll talk to you soon
1: All right, man. Uh, Talk to you later.
0: See ya. ya. Episode 78 with Teddy Payne. I know it's a little shorter. Um, It was was cutting in and out. Um, I don't want to ever give you guys a product that's not quality over quantity, Um, and I didn't want to push it too far because I wanted to be able to engage too. Um, That's my fault. I need to figure that out before I podcast again. I hope you guys enjoyed episode 78 of the Call and a Man's Answer show. Be in store tomorrow for another episode, and as always, ladies and gentlemen, stay demanding.